This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. You know, as a young Canadian boy, I believe I was only one of thousands of kids who'd go to bed each night dreaming of wearing that famous red tunic, broad-brimmed hat, and marvelous shiny boots that came almost up to your knees. Yes, the Northwest Mounted Police is the force I'm speaking of. And isn't it strange that this Canadian legend became famous because of an American, George W. Trendle, the station owner of WXYZ in Detroit, asked for an adventure show with a dog as the hero. Trendle insisted that it not be a dog like Lassie because, well, this must be an action story. It had to be a working dog. Writer Tom Dougal, who had been influenced by the poems of Robert W. Service, naturally chose a husky. The dog was originally called Mogo, but after criticism by Trendle, Dougal rechristened the dog Yukon King. Dougal likewise created Sergeant Preston, uh, that's Sergeant Preston, and the French-Canadian guide Fran Stryker. The program was an adventure series about Sergeant Frank Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police and his lead sled dog, Yukon King, as they fought evildoers in the northern wilderness during the gold rush of the 1890s. And the true star of the show was indeed the brave Alaskan husky Yukon King. He had a keen instinct for sensing criminals and was equally valuable dealing with wild animals, once saving a small child from a wolverine. In the radio version, King's barks were usually provided by animal imitators, usually sound effects artists like Dewey Cole and later actor Ted Johnston. The radio series supplied King with a backstory. As a radio historian, Jim Harmon recalled that King had been a husky puppy raised by a mother wolf, and when a lynx attacks the wolf and her cub, Sergeant Preston arrives just in time to save King. Preston then raised the animal as his own dog team captain. Well, tonight's episode is entitled Escape to the North. Now, as gunshots echo across the windswept, snow-covered reaches of the wild northwest, Quaker puff wheat and Quaker puff rice, the breakfast cereal shot from guns, present the challenge of the Yukon. It's Yukon King, swiftest and strongest lead dog of the Northwest, blazing the trail for Sergeant Preston of the Northwest Mounted Police in his relentless pursuit of lawbreakers. On King, on Huskies! Gold, gold discovered in the Yukon. A stampede to the Klondike in the wild race for riches. Back to the days of the gold rush. With Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice, bringing you the adventures of Sergeant Preston and his wonder dog, Yukon King, as they meet the challenge of the Yukon. Oh, man, 
what a treat it is to dive into a heaping bowlful of Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat topped with milk or cream and your favorite fruit. Mmm, what a breakfast. Say, these king-size, ready-to-serve premium grains of wheat or rice are shot from guns. Yes, actually exploded up to eight times normal size to make them crisp and tender. Bigger and better tasting. Tomorrow, sure, get off to a flying start with this breakfast treat. Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat. Luke McGowan was a hard-bitten product of the Northwest Frontier, whose temper had not been sweetened by the fact that he had received what he considered a raw deal from organized society. After killing a man in a cafe brawl, he had been unable to prove that he had shot in self-defense and had been sentenced to ten years at hard labor. When his prison term was up, Luke drifted north to the Yukon, and in the summer of 98, he staked a small claim far up the Stewart River. All through the following fall and winter, Luke worked his claim industriously, and by the end of February, when his claim had finally petered out, he had taken more than $20,000 worth of gold dust out of the ground. Now he was on his way to Dawson City to cash in his dust and decide what to do with his hard-earned riches. McGowan had reached the mouth of the Stewart River and was traveling north along the Yukon Trail when he fell in with Louis Goreau, a swarthy, shifty-eyed half-breed. McGowan mistrusted the half-breed on sight and made up his mind that if questioned, he would say nothing about the bags of gold that were stowed away with the gear on his sled. So you have been prospecting up on the Stewart, eh, McGowan? Yeah, that's right, Goreau. Now you go to Dawson with plenty gold in your poke, eh? Oh. No, I didn't have no luck at all. I'm flat broke. Too bad, my friend. But uh, that is the luck of the game, eh? What are you looking at me with that way for? I am trying to remember where I have seen you before. Now I remember. You are the Luke McGowan that was sentenced for killing a man 10, 11 years ago down in British Columbia, no? It happens that he drew on me first. Not that it's any of your business. Now, if you don't like the idea of being trail mates with a murderer... I'll mush on by myself. <laughs> oh, do not go losing your temper, my friend. Whatever you are, a murderer or an honest man, Louis Garot can take care of himself. Come on, we hit the trail together. Twilight was falling as the two sleds drew to a halt at a fork in the trail. Here I must leave you, my friend. My cabin, she lied that way. Like to come with me, I would be glad to put you off for the night. Oh, thanks. I'll keep on the trail for Dawson. Very well. Then I say goodbye. In another hour, you should be able to reach Joe Rinker's cabin. Joe Rinker? I never heard of him. He is, uh, how you say, uh, an old timer. He has a mine, very rich mine, too. But he wishes to sell it so he can go home to the States. Probably he will try to sell it to you. He tries to sell it to everybody. Well, he won't <laughs> sell it to me. I have the money to buy it. I gotta be mushing on, Garo. Au revoir, my friend. Maybe I see you at Joe Rinker's tomorrow morning. Maybe. But I'll be hitting the trail mighty early. So long, Garo. An hour later, Luke McGowan reached Joe Rinker's cabin. That evening, after a tasty supper of bacon and beans, the two men sat talking near the stove. Joe Rinker spoke. 
So you made out all right for yourself, hey, McGowan? Yeah, I cleaned up at least $20,000 worth of gold dust. <laughs> that breed Garot don't know it, though. I didn't trust the critter, so I told him I was flat broke. <laughs> Where are you going? Hey, what are you going to do with that gun? Oh, I'm going to kill you. Kill me? What for? Because I want that gold on your sled. But what about your mine? It's not worth that plug nickel. It's solid. I've been trying to unload it on someone for the last six months. You mean you're actually broke? Yeah, I'm broke, all right. But I've sworn I'm going to leave the Yukon with a decent stake. And that gold on your sled is just a stake I've been looking for. Look, you can't shoot me, Ringer. You'll never get away with it. No one will know you're missing, McGowan. Better say your prayers right now. No, you don't. Lunging forward suddenly, Luke sees Joe Rinker's wrist. For a moment, the two men grappled, and then... I've killed him. With a sinking feeling, Luke realized the full danger of his position. Who would believe his incredible story when every circumstance suggested that he had murdered the mine owner, with robbery as the obvious motive? i got to clear out of here fast. Early the next morning, Louis Garreau stopped by Joe Rinker's cabin. He's dead. And I bet I know who shot him. Luke McGowan. We better go tell him on his. Sergeant Preston and his great dog, King, were at the nearby settlement of Ogilvy when Garreau arrived with the news of Joe Rinker's murder. A short time later, Sergeant Preston and King, with Louis Garreau, were carefully examining the scene of the crime. What do you look at the walls for, Sergeant? Rinker's gun had been fired. I want to see if the shot went wild and landed in the woodwork. Maybe he hit McGowan with that shot. I doubt that. If McGowan had been wounded, chances are he'd have left traces of blood somewhere around the cabin. You can bet King would nose out those traces. Ah, that is very strange. Now listen to me, Louis. Judging from those tracks outside, McGowan's heading due east. Go back to Ogilvy and tell them I said telegraph McGowan's description to all the settlements east of here. In the meantime, I'll put King on McGowan's trail. Come on, boy. <laughs> got a job to do. It was noon of that same day in the little town of Moose Crossing that Bill Weems, the local telegraph operator, stopped into Ma Schmidt's general store. Well, Bill, what's the news on the telegraph today? Plenty of excitement on the way, Ma. A man was found murdered over near Ogilvy. Murdered, you say? Ah, that is bad. The Montys know who did it, and they say he's heading this way. They've wired his description to all the settlements east of Ogilvy. What does he look like? Murderer. Well, he says he's a big, tough-looking sourdough with a crop of red whiskers. His name is Luke McGowan. You better keep an eye out for this McGowan feller. In the meantime, William, what do you say to a little game of checkers before you go back to work? <laughs> what do you think I came over for, Ma? <laughs> a short time later, as Ma and Bill were bent over the checkerboard, they heard the door open. Oh, you got a customer, Ma? Yeah, yeah, I go see what he wants. Yes, sir. What can I do? Well, what are you staring at? I was just admiring that crop of red whiskers you got. <laughs> Quite a bonfire you got there, mister. Yeah? Well, never mind my whiskers. Just attend to my order and I'll be on my way. Yeah, yeah. You tell me what you want and I get it for you. As Ma bustled around, filling the stranger's order, she found an opportunity to whisper to Bill. It's that murderer McGowan. Sneak up the back way and go get help. That's what I thought. You keep him talking. Don't make a move, either of you. Since you two seem to know all about me, maybe I'd better tie you both up. Covering Ma Schmidt and Bill Weems with his six-shooter, Luke forced them to tie each other's ankles. 
Then he himself tied their hands behind their backs. Yeah, I guess that'll hold you. All right, how much owe you for those supplies? I do not know. I haven't added up the bill. Maybe sixteen, seventeen dollars. I'll help myself to the flour and call it twenty. Several hours later, Sergeant Preston and King arrived in town. Ma Schmidt and Bill Weems told the Mountie their story. Yeah, yeah, Sergeant. I recognized him by his red whiskers. Mm. And a funny thing, Sergeant. He seemed mighty honest for a murderer. Before he left, he laid out enough gold to pay for the supplies he bought. And he left it on the pan of the scales. Pleasure and gold, eh? Yeah. Yesterday, he said he was flat broke. Ah, he had plenty of gold, Sergeant. The folk he brought into the store to pay for his supplies, he must have had 20 pounds of gold dust on it. That gold may be the final evidence that will convict Luke McGowan of murder. Yeah. Come on, King. Better hit the trail again. Luck we should be able to arrest McGowan within the next 24 hours. After leaving Moose Crossing, Sergeant Preston noticed that the fugitive's tracks had now swerved in a northerly direction. He knows we're after him, boy, so he's striking north. Probably thinks he can circle around Dawson and Forty Mile and get over the border before we catch up with him. Well, let's see about that. Unking! Late the following morning, Luke headed up a rocky trail that gradually climbed until it topped a lofty, spruce-clad plateau. Pausing to look back over the ground he had just traveled, the fugitive finally caught sight of his pursuer on the winding trail far below. That must be a mountain. The way that team of his is traveling, he'll be on my neck in another hour. Must you, Husky! Hush! Whipping his team forward frantically, Luke pushed on at top speed. A short time later, he came to a low bridge, stretching across a steep wall ravine. The bridge was made of logs. Luke crossed the bridge, then halted his team and took out an axe from among the gear on his sled and began chopping. With furious strokes, Lou hewed away at the log bridge. Soon the structure began to totter. With a few more blows, the fugitive finally sent it crashing to the floor of the ravine far below. Already, Luke could hear the approaching dog team of his pursuer. Driving his own sled behind a big cluster of rocks, the fugitive ducked out of sight and waited tensely. As Sergeant Preston pulled to a halt on the opposite ledge, Luke stepped into view with his rifle raised to his chest and shouted, Don't go for your gun, Marty. McGowan, I advise you to surrender. I advise you to turn around and head back the way you came. And if I refuse... I'm not turning back, McGowan. I'm starting around the ravine right now to place you under arrest. Remember, you can shoot me, but sooner or later the force will catch up with you. All right. Hun King! Hun! I'm warning you, Marty! One, two, three! We'll continue our story in just a moment. Shot from guns. These three famous words mean a breakfast treat all ready to eat. The original, the one and only Quaker puffed rice or Quaker puffed wheat. Yes, these are giant-sized grains. I said giant-sized. 
And they actually are shot from guns to make them crisp and tender. Quaker puffed rice and Quaker puffed wheat are exploded up, up, up to eight times normal size. That makes them bigger and better tasting. Yes, they're shot through and through with keen nut-like flavor, too. They're a thrifty deluxe family breakfast treat that's easy to fix as falling off a log. Just pour out a bowlful, add some fruit, and milk or cream. Talk about good. More important, long hours at school and play call for a hearty breakfast. And Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice furnish added food values of restored natural grain amounts of vitamin B1, niacin, and iron. So how about it? You'll be getting off to a flying start when you eat Quaker puffed wheat or Quaker puffed rice. And to get the original crisp, fresh wheat or rice shot from guns, always buy the big red and blue package with the smiling Quaker man on the front. Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice are never sold in bags or bulk. Now to continue our story. King was furious when he saw his master fall face down in the snow. He wanted to charge, to attack the gunman, but the canyon blocked his way. Then the great dog did the next best thing. He sprang to his master's side, ready to shield Preston from further bullets with his own furry body. Sergeant Preston lay quietly for a few moments until he heard the barking of McGowan's dogs fade into the distance. Then he sat up and examined his wound. It's all right, boy. Just caught me in the fleshy part of the leg. Seems to be all right. Guess I can manage. King... If McGowan's a murderer, I wonder why he didn't kill me. At that distance, it's hard to see how he could have missed. Sergeant Preston bandaged his wound and then began the long hazardous trip around the ravine. By the time he picked up McGowan's trail on the opposite side of the ravine, the fugitive had gained a full six hours' lead on him. In the days that followed, Sergeant Preston maintained a steady, relentless pursuit of his quarry. On the fifth day after he had been wounded... Sergeant Preston encountered a trapper named Sandy Duncan, heading south with a load of furs. Sandy, I'm trailing a man named McGowan. Big, tough-looking fellow and a crop of red whiskers. You seen him? I sure have, Sergeant. That's why I'm heading south. What do you mean? He came to my cabin this morning and took nearly all my grub at the point of a gun. Of course, he paid me for it, but you can't eat gold. Well, I'm running pretty low on grub myself, Sandy. I'll split what I have with him. No, you better hang on to what you've got. Tell you what, though, Sergeant... If you're willing to take time out, we can go hunting for a couple of hours. If either of us gets anything, we can share it. That might be a good idea. All right, Sandy, I'll do it. Sandy led the sergeant up the banks of a frozen creek, where he thought they might locate the tracks of a stray moose or caribou. The two men separated in order to cover a wider terrain. But when they met several hours later, the only thing to show for their trouble was a snowshoe rabbit, which King had startled and driven into range of his master's revolver. Discouraged and somewhat uneasy, the two men headed back to their sleds, only to find that disaster had struck in their absence. Hey, someone's been at our sled, Sergeant. I think I can guess what's happened. Oh, they've cleaned out your grub and fed it to the huskies. Look, McGowan, Sandy. Now I know why you bought up most of your food this morning. Wanted to keep me from getting any of it. The murdering galoot. Left us enough to eat for a day or so. That lot of good that'll do. Sergeant, you better turn around and come south with me. I can't do that, Sandy. But, Sergeant, you'll starve if you don't catch up with him. I'll have to take that chance. My job is to bring back McGowan, and that's what I'm going to do. 
Cutting down his daily rations to the bare minimum needed to sustain life, Sergeant Preston pushed grimly ahead. It was two days later in a remote mountain valley that his long pursuit finally approached its climax. A grisly sight met the Mounties' eyes. Ahead of him on the snow-covered trail lay McGowan's overturned sled with the Huskies dead in their traces, their sides feathered with arrows. We can't help them now, King. They're dead. McGowan evidently didn't know it. But when he entered this valley, he was trespassing on the Indian's sacred hunting grounds. They don't seem to have disturbed the gear on his sled. Let's take a look, boy. Plenty of supplies and... Wait a minute. Gold dust. Four big bags full of it. As Sandy said, you can't eat gold. And yet men kill each other to possess it. Doesn't make much sense, does it, boy? Sergeant Preston transferred the supplies and the gold from McGowan's led to his own. Then he gave King his orders. All right, King, we're going after McGowan and the men who captured him. There's a chance he may still be alive. But remember, from now on, keep the Huskies absolutely quiet. Our own lives may depend on it. Darkness had fallen an hour later as King slowed the team with a low growl. Oh, you Huskies. Oh, no. What is it, boy? We near their camp? Leaving his sled, Sergeant Preston went cautiously forward with King at his side. Soon the distant flicker of a firelight among the pines warned the Mountie that he was in sight of the Indian camp. Advancing silently through the darkness, the Mountie and his great dog took cover in a dense thicket of pines and underbrush. Before them, in a small clearing lit by a blazing campfire, they saw five Indian warriors chanting and posturing before a white man bound helplessly to a stake. It's Luke McGowan, all right. They're getting ready. Spears and arrows. King, now listen to me, boy. I'm going to tell you what to do. King cocked his ears and looked steadily at Sergeant Preston's eyes while the Mountie gave instructions. Then the great dog slunk silently around the edge of the clearing, keeping always out of sight behind a screen of trees and underbrush. The Mountie waited until he was sure King had arrived in position. And then suddenly... With his carbine in one hand and revolver in the other, the Mountie burst out of the underbrush, firing into the air. The Indians, taken completely by surprise and believing themselves attacked from two sides, fled in wild disorder. As King pursued them to the edge of the clearing, Sergeant Preston dropped his carbine, prepared to cut Luke McGowan free from the stake. Mountie, you showed up just in time. Never mind talking. There. Now you're free. Take this revolver and I'll take the carbine. We'll have to reload as we run. As the two white men prepared to flee, one Indian, braver than the others, paused and looked back at the clearing. In a flash, his keen eyes took in what was happening. He rallied his comrades to battle. Rushing back toward the clearing, the Indians loosed a volley of arrows at the fleeing white men. Most of the arrows went wild, but one struck Sergeant Preston in the shoulder. Oh, Preston! As the sergeant was hit, King sprang to cover his beloved master, and Luke McGowan turned coolly and fired point-blank at the onrushing Indian. Two of the Indians went down before Luke's shots. The others wavered, then turned to retreat. Now carry him, Mountie. King, lead the way, boy. Jamming the revolver into the sergeant's holster, Luke hoisted him over one brawny shoulder, then reached down and picked up the carbine. All right, Husky, let's go. King led McGowan to his master's sled, where the sergeant was gently deposited and the arrow removed. McGowan bandaged the wound as best he could, and then... We better make tracks out of this valley pronto. Must you, Husky! The next morning, Sergeant Preston awoke. McGowan, where are we? Take it easy, Mountie. We're 
good many miles south of that Indian Valley. Oh, old fellow. Good old king. Some dog you got, Sergeant, believe me. Hadn't it been for him, we might have left our top hair back there with the Indians. What happened to your weapons, McGowan? They weren't on your sled. My six shooters right here under my park. Huh? The Indians never did get that. They took my rifle. They got so excited when you attacked, they forgot all about it. Well, what's the next move? You seem to hold all the trump cards at the moment. I don't know, Sergeant. Something else I don't savvy is why you risk your life to save me. I might ask you the same question. Well... How about it? You coming back to stand trial? Yeah, Marty, I, I guess I am. A week later, the two men arrived back in Dawson City. Their appearance caused a minor sensation. Sergeant Preston, still weak from his wound, was riding the sled while Luke McGowan handled the team. Inspector Maynard, seated in his office at Mounted Police Headquarters, voiced the general reaction. What did you do to him, Sergeant? Hypnotize him? That's the first time I've ever seen a prisoner brought in driving the Mountie sled for him. This prisoner came back voluntarily, Inspector. And I think that should be remembered in his favor. It will be, Sergeant. Tell me, sir, have they held the inquest on Rinker's death? Yes, and they returned a verdict of murder against Luke McGowan. Oh, in that case, he'll have to stand trial. Any reason why he shouldn't? He's guilty, isn't he? Of shooting Rinker, yes, sir. Of murder, I don't think so. Can you prove that, Sergeant? I'm going to try, Inspector. I'm going to try awfully hard. On the day of the trial, the courtroom was packed. Luke McGowan was on the stand. Now, tell us in your own words exactly what happened at Joe Rinker's cabin. Rinker pointed his gun at me and said he was going to kill me. He said he wanted the gold on my sled because his own mine was worthless. I grappled with him and... The gun went off accidentally. Public sentiment, which at first had run strongly against McGowan, was now divided. And if Sergeant Preston says McGowan ain't guilty, then he ain't. But don't forget, he served time for killing a man down in British Columbia. Uh, let's wait and hear the evidence. A tense hush fell over the audience as Sergeant Preston took the stand. Sergeant, I understand you've gathered evidence tending to support the defendant's story. Will you tell us what that evidence is? Yes, sir. In the first place, Rinker was not killed by McGowan's gun. How do you know that, Sergeant? McGowan's six-shooter is a Colt 45. The bullet that killed Rinker was from a 32. It was obviously fired from Rinker's own gun, as McGowan claims. How do you know the 32 revolver found in the dead man's hand really belonged to Rinker? Friends have identified it as Rinker's gun, sir. Also, his initials were carved on the grips. You feel that rules out the possibility of murder? In my opinion, if McGowan had shot Rinker in cold blood, he would have used his own six-shooter. Simply doesn't make sense that he used Rinker's gun. Only reasonable explanation is that Rinker drew on him and the two men grappled, just as McGowan claims. I see. Is there any other evidence? Yes, sir. I've carefully examined Rinker's mine. With what result? The mine is worthless. <laughs> Well, that throws some doubt on McGowan's alleged motive for the crime. Frankly, sir, I think it explodes the whole case against him. If Rinker's mine was worthless, then the gold on McGowan's sled must have come from his own claim. Under those circumstances, it was Rinker and not McGowan who had a motive for murder. Is that all, Sergeant? Well, I'd like to add this, sir. At no time while I was trailing McGowan did he behave like a cold-blooded killer. His every act 
was that of an innocent but desperate man. And when he returned to stand trial, he returned voluntarily, even though he could easily have killed me and escaped. In my opinion, Luke McGowan is clearly innocent of murder. Following Sergeant Preston's testimony, it took only a few minutes for the jury to return its verdict. We find the defendant not guilty. As the crowd left the courtroom, Luke McGowan pressed the sergeant's hand warmly. Your goal's waiting for you at headquarters, Luke. Oh, never mind the goal, Sergeant. I I just want to shake your hand. Oh, don't bother thanking me, Luke. I was just doing my job. Thank King here. If he hadn't been on your trail, you might still be a fugitive. And if he hadn't been with us in that Indian valley, we might both be dead men. He's a smart dog and no mistake. Gosh, King, thanks, fella. At last, I've had a fair deal. <laughs> What's he mean by that? Well, Luke, I guess he's glad to know this case is closed. In just a moment, Sergeant Preston will give you a preview of Wednesday's adventure. Listen. Whatever you do, be listening to this program Wednesday. Remember, fellas and girls, that's the day after tomorrow. You're in for such a treat you'll hardly believe your ears. Quaker puffed wheat and Quaker puffed rice have a surprise for you. If you like dogs, if you like king, if you like any dog, be on hand. Every single one of you listeners is getting in on something big, an offer that's out of this world. It's something you'll want, and it's yours at no extra cost. There's nothing to write in for. What is it? Well, all I can say is this. If you like dogs, be listening to our very next broadcast. And tell your friends to listen, too. That's this coming Wednesday, the day after tomorrow. These radio dramas, a feature of the challenge of the Yukon Incorporated, are created and produced by George W. Trendle, directed by Fred Flowerday, and edited by Fran Stryker. The part of Sergeant Preston is played by Paul Sutton. They are brought to you every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the same time by Quaker Puff Wheat and Quaker Puff Rice, the breakfast cereal shot from gun. Listen Wednesday when Sergeant Preston and Yukon King meet the challenge of the Yukon in the case of the Sparrow. I was taking a boat trip on the Yukon Queen to protect a millionaire who was coming from New York. One night I found a note slipped under the door asking me to come to another part of the ship. When I reached there, I was slugged and thrown overboard. When King jumped after me, well, it's a mighty exciting story. Be sure to hear this exciting adventure Wednesday. Michael wishing you goodbye, good luck, and good health from Quaker Puffed Wheat and Quaker Puffed Rice. So long. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company. Stay tuned for Bud Abbott and Lou Costello as they deal with baseball royalty Joe DiMaggio. Time now for Bud Abbott and Lou Costello as we hear about the time that Lou subs for none other than Joe DiMaggio. 
E-L-S. That's right, folks. C for comedy, A for Abbott, M for Maxwell, E for Ennis, L for Lou Costello. Put them all together and they spell camel. Experience is the best teacher. Try a camel. Let your own experience tell you why more people are smoking camels than ever before. And draw up a chair for tonight's Camel Show, starring Bud Abbott and Luke Costello. Costello, Costello, come here. Costello, will you come over here, please? Will you listen to me? What are you writing on that pad? Hey, Abbott. What are you writing on that pad? I'm just making out a list of girls I'm going to kiss next week. Here's who I got picked out. Lizzie Schwartz, Maggie Mugglemeyer, Tessie Tinfoil, Lana Turner. Now, wait a minute. Lana Turner wouldn't kiss you. Oh, no? Oh, no. Then I'll scratch her off my list. I love you. You dummy, always thinking of girls. Girls, girls, girls. Great men don't waste their time on girls. Where do you suppose Benjamin Franklin would have been if he'd have thought of girls all of the time? In the front row at Earl Carroll's? No, no, no. <laughs> Costello, I've been telling you for the past three weeks. You've got to quit chasing girls and get yourself a job. Look at you. Look how sloppy you are. Look at your socks. I can't help my socks, Abbott. It's those new Hickok plastic garters. What's the matter with them? Your stock socks stay up, but your legs fall down. Yeah. <laughs> Luke Costello, telegraph Luke Costello. Yeah, boy. Out of the way, Patso. I'm looking for Luke Costello. Boy, he is Luke Costello. The famous Luke Costello. The one and only Luke Costello. That's me. Gee, I listen to you on the radio every Thursday night. You break me up when you say, how do you do? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That ain't me. That's the mad Russian. You're saying? I'm a neat. Who's going to take this telegram? I'll take take it. it. It's collect. Fourteen dollars. He'll take it. it. (laughs) Don't give it to me. Here, boy. Hey, Costello. This telegram is from Joe DiMaggio. Listen to this. Dear Lou, as you know, I am recovering from a foot operation. I would appreciate you taking my place... Appreciate you taking my place on the New York Yankees until I recover. Please report to the Yankee Stadium immediately. Signed, Joe DiMaggio. Hey, that's the news. That's the news I've been waiting for. I'm going to be a big league ball player. Yes. DiMaggio probably heard about my playing with the Cucamonga Wildcats last year. You a ball player? I don't believe it, Costello. You know nothing about ball. Oh, no, I eat baseball. I live baseball. All night when I'm asleep, I dream about baseball. Don't you ever dream about girls? What, and miss my turn up at bat? Oh! What's the matter with you? Yes. And another thing, Abbott. What page are you on? Never mind what page you're on. Another thing, Abbott. Not only that, in Patterson, New Jersey, I worked out with a baseball team. I used to stay out till 4 o'clock in the morning. Why did you stay out till 4 o'clock in the morning? This was a girls' baseball team. <laughs> Costello, if you're going to play with the New York Yankees, you really have to know something about big league baseball, Lou. I know all about baseball. All right, suppose there's a left-handed pitcher pitching. What do you do? I put in a right-handed batter. Now, suppose there's a right-handed pitcher pitching. I put in a left-handed batter. But now I trick you. I take out the right-handed pitcher and put in a left-handed pitcher. Then I double-cross you. I take out my left-handed batter and put in a right-handed batter. Now, wait a minute. Where are you getting all those right-handed batters? The same place where you're getting all those left-handed pitchers. Oh. <laughs> Hello, Bud. Hello, Cust- Lewis, Cust- honey. It's, uh, it's Marilyn Maxwell. Hello, Marilyn. 
I've got great news. I'm going to play ball with the New York Yankees. I'm taking you along as a pitcher. Oh, now, Costello, Merrill and Maxwell can't pitch. Oh, no? You should see all the guys she struck out that were trying to get the first base. Oh, no. <laughs> this kid has got some nice curves. Oh, Lewis, you're so sweet. But I do hope you be careful. You know, big league baseball is a very dangerous game. Oh, what's dangerous about baseball, Maryland? Well, I read in the paper this morning that in the opening game in Boston, five players died on base. <laughs> Maryland, you don't seem to know much about baseball. Let me show you how to play indoor baseball. First, I put my left arm around your waist. Then I snuggle my head on your shoulder like this. Then I press my cheek against your cheek. Oh, wait a minute, Costello. That's not the way to play indoor baseball. How do you like that? Every season, new rules. <laughs> Goodbye and good luck, Lewis. I just know you'll become famous for those New York Yankees. Maryland's right, Thank Costello. You, this is Thank your you. chance to become famous. Now, you've got a good job as a baseball player, and you might find your proper niche in life. Yes, I might. I mean, after all, if I find my... What will I find? A niche, a niche. You'll find your niche. Abbott, when I find an itch, I scratch it. No. <laughs> what in the world are you talking about? An itch. I once had the seven-year itch. What happened? I scratched real fast and got rid of it in three and a half years. <laughs> I'm not talking about that kind of a niche. I mean a niche in life. A niche in life is what everyone is looking for. Anyone who is successful has found a niche. Well, if that's the case, I know an Airedale that is doing very well. Uh, well you know, listen to me, Costello. When I say a niche, I don't mean a niche like you have when you have an itch. I mean a niche like you have when you have a notch. Oh, you don't mean an itch like a niche when you have a niche. You mean a niche like you have when you have a notch. Now you've got it. Now I've got it. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Costello, why do you mash everything up like that? You're the most mixed-up man I ever saw. Well, maybe it's because I fell on my mother's mix master this morning. She had it set for mashed potatoes. I'm oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mother. I know that. You idiot. All I'm trying to tell you is that a niche is a notch. Catch? Notch. Notch. All right. <laughs> now you know that a niche is a notch. Uh, you know that both of them are the same. Yes. Now, I could have a notch and you could have a niche. Yes. Niche to me and notch to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm only trying to impress you the importance of being a big league ball player and having a good income. Did you ever draw a nice big fat salary? No, I never drew a fat salary, but I once sketched a skinny tomato. No, no, no. no. <laughs> when I say draw, I don't mean draw like you draw when you draw. I mean draw like you draw when you draw a salary. Have it. Let me smell your breath. Mm-hmm. Just as I thought. You've drawn one too many already. <laughs> you listen to me, please. When I say you draw a salary, I mean you draw money. Now he's got me drawing money. Wait till the FBI finds out about this. I'll probably draw 20 years in a clink. And they don't feed you any salary in there, either. Costello, when I say you draw money, I mean you draw like you draw money to spend it. Not, not like when you draw on an easel. That's what I always say. With money, it's easel come, easel go. No, no, no. <laughs> Everybody draws money. I draw money. I've been drawing money for years. My brother draws money. He's been drawing money for years. You draw, and your brother draws? Certainly. Just as I thought. You and your brother are an old pair of drawers. <laughs> Camel here, Skinny Ennis with Linda. When I go to sleep, I never count sheep. I count all the charms about Linda. Lately it seems, in all of my dreams, I walk with my arms about Linda. But what good does it do me? For Linda doesn't know I exist. Can't help feeling gloomy. 
Think of all the loving I've missed. We pass on the street. My heart skips a beat. I say to myself, hello, Linda. If only she'd smile, I'd stop her a while. And then I would get to know Linda. But miracles still happen. And when my lucky star begins to shine, with one lucky break, I'll make Linda Skips a beat. I say to myself, hello, Linda. If only she'd smile, I'd stop her a while. And then I would get to know Linda. But miracles still happen. And when my lucky star begins to shine, with one lucky break, I'll make Linda mine. ball player, you've got to get yourself in shape. Now, from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m., you lift weights. From 9 to 10, deep knee bends. 10 to 11, skip rope. 11 to 12, run five miles. Oh, the one, I'll never make it. I love it. <laughs> you idiot, you'll never be a ball player. Staying up late and going to nightclubs, eating rich food, running around with beautiful girls. Do you know what can happen to you? Yes, I can become manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers. I... <laughs> I don't even know why DiMaggio picked you. You don't even know how to swing a bat. I know all about swinging bats. When I was a kid, my father used to hit me with a baseball bat. My brother used to hit me with a baseball bat. My Uncle Artie Stebbins used to hit me with a baseball bat. And my mother used to hit me with a tennis racket. With a tennis racket? Yes, she didn't like baseball. <laughs> Hiya, fellas. Well, well, it's Indianus. Hey, Costello, I heard about you taking uh, Joe DiMaggio's place for the New York Yankees. That's right. You know, I used to pitch for the Hollywood Stars. And boy, I'll never forget my last game. Well, five men on base. Oh, no, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Five men on base. Now, that's impossible. Did you ever see the Hollywood stars play? Ennis, I... <laughs> I've seen the Hollywood stars, and I don't remember you. Oh, I've changed a lot since then. I had the biggest buck teeth you ever saw. I was the only man on the team that could slide into second base and spike you from either end. <laughs> well, so long, fatso. So long, skinny. So long. Hey, you know that skinny would make an ugly skeleton? All right. <laughs> Costello, don't waste time with him. Now, you've got to get ready for the opening game. Yes, I think we're going to play the Cleveland Indians. Cleveland Indians, eh? Uh-huh. Feller pitching? Certainly there's a feller pitching. <laughs> Who do you think they'd use a girl? Oh, I, I know they don't use a girl. I said feller pitching. What feller? Feller with the Cleveland Indians. Look, Gabbett, there's nine guys on the Cleveland team. Now, which feller are you talking about? Feller that pitches. There is only one feller with Cleveland. You mean nine Yankees are going to play against one feller? That's right. You mean there's no fellas in the outfield? No. And there's no fellas in the infield? No. Cleveland only has one feller. Well, this feller must be pretty good if, if they don't need, he don't need any other players but himself. Look, all the players will be out there helping him. You just said there was only one feller on the team. That's right. Then where did all them other fellers come from? Oh, you idiot. When I say there's only one feller on the team, I mean there is only one feller that pitches. Well, Abbott, when the manager of the team wants this pitcher, what does he call him? Feller. You mean it just hollers, hey, feller! 
And this guy knows that they mean him? That's right. <laughs> His name is Feller, Feller, Bob Feller. And when I say there is only one feller on the team that pitches, that's it. And the feller that pitches is feller. There's only the other fellers on the team, uh, but there's uh, only one feller. Boy, are you mixed up. <laughs> oh, you mean the feller that pitches is feller. And there's other fellers on the team, but they're not fellers? Now you grasp it. Yes, I grasp it, but it keeps slipping out of my hands. <laughs> Let's go into this sporting goods store and get your baseball equipment. I want you to look right for the opening game. Uh, go ahead and ask that lady there where they keep the baseball uniforms. Uh, pardon me, miss. Well, if it isn't Mr. Albert. Hello. And Mr. Costello. Hello. You false little monument. <laughs> what are you doing in the sporting goods store, miss? Oh, I just stopped in to get a gift for my nephew. I'm buying him a boss ball. Ball. Boss ball? Abbott, <laughs> you know what a boss ball is? That's what the poocher goes to the coocher. <laughs> and the pooter tries to boot a home run. <laughs> my, uh, my nephew is just a local chope, but his ambition is to be a Brooklyn doger, cotcher. Well, if he's only a little guy, why don't he join the Detroit Tookers and be a short stoop? <laughs> As we say in Chinese, it's your gooey hop dooey on Pushpatu, you. And a dish of gooey chop suey and a push for you, too. Hey, look, that's a salesman now. Oh, good morning, boys. As Johnny Weissmuller said to Buster Crab, what dive did you come out of? <laughs> well, my friend and I are here to get some baseball equipment. Uh, I'd like to see a baseball uniform that would fit Costello. So would I. <laughs> Look, as Adam said to Eve, quit ribbing me. <laughs> However, I'll do the best I can. We'll start with the spiked shoe. What size do you wear? Eight. Oh, let me see. I've only got one pair left, and they're size five. Maybe you can squeeze into them, Costello. Go ahead and try. Okay. <laughs> what do you know? Open-toed baseball shoes. <laughs> now for the uniform. My, you're setting me up. Pudgy little rascal, aren't you? Mm-hmm. Aren't you overweight? I'm about 120 pounds overweight, but I'm going back to my normal weight. Yes, what's normal? 60 pounds overweight. <laughs> Gosh, Sally, you should really go on a diet. Yeah, of course you know what a diet is, don't you? Oh, sure. That's where you can eat all you want of everything you don't like. <laughs> Young man, if you really want to reduce, why don't you exercise with a couple of dumbbells? Okay, I'm ready whenever you and Abbott are. All right. <laughs> Your baseball equipment. Mister, do you have any bats? Oh, certainly. Here's a fine bat. Autographed by Slaughter of the Cardinals. This bat was made for Slaughter. Ain't you got one that was made for baseball? <laughs> when he says Slaughter, he means Slaughter the baseball player. Slaughter the baseball player? With that bat, you could slaughter anybody. <laughs> no, no, Costello. I'm talking about Slaughter. Everybody knows Slaughter. He knows Slaughter. Well, maybe he knows Slaughter, but I don't know. <laughs> you idiot. Everybody knows Slaughter the baseball player. Slaughter is the man's last name. What's his first name? He knows. Now, there's a clever guy. He knows his first name. Oh, well, let's forget about the bat. Look, mister, do you have a baseball cap that will fit Costello's head? What size pencil sharpener does he wear? Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, a baseball cap. Oh, yes, here's a dandy. This is the kind fella wears. What fella? The fella with the Cleveland Indians. There's nine players with the Cleveland Indians. Which fella are you talking about? Oh, young man, when I say fella with the Cleveland Indians, I am only referring to one fella. 
The fellow that pictures with the Cleveland Indians. When you say the fellow with the Cleveland Indians, you're only referring to one fellow. The fellow that pictures for the Cleveland Indians. Yeah. As Orville said to Wilbur, you're right. <laughs> How do you like that? Now they're doing our routines in sporting good stories. <laughs> oh, forget about him, Custer. Hey, wait a minute. I've got an idea. Mrs. Wetwash's late husband used to be a big league ba- ball player. Now, he was a home run king, in other words. Now, maybe she'll give you one of his bats for good luck. Let's go over to her house and ask her. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll go right over now, huh? You're right, Abbott. As John Adams said to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow... How do you like that? I forgot what John Adams said to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. <laughs> well, good morning, Mrs. Wetwash. Oh, hello, Mr. Abbott. My, <gasps> you know you ought to muzzle that St. Bernard dog. <laughs> Pardon me, it's Costello. <laughs> uh, tell me, Costello, how are things in Gawker, moron? <laughs> Mrs. Whitwash, I wish you hadn't said that. I was just telling Abbott, your face reminds me of a rose. Oh, really? An American beauty rose? No, a rhinoceros. <laughs> <laughs> up, Costello. Mrs. Whitwash, Costello's leaving for New York to join Joe DiMaggio's place. Take Joseph's place. Isn't that wonderful? He's going to play with the Yanks. Oh, I can't believe it. Yes? What do those big Yanks want with a little jerk like him? <laughs> Mrs. Whitwash, that was an insult. I'll have you know that beautiful women find me irresistible. <laughs> I don't find you irresistible. And I don't find you beautiful. Quiet, <laughs> Costello. Ask her for those baseball bats her husband left her. Okay. Mrs. Whitwash, I understand when your husband was alive, he had a lot of old bats. That's a lie. He never went out with anybody but me. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, no, no, Mrs. Whitwash. Costello means your husband's uh, baseball bats. You yes. see, he thought you might give him one of them. Yes, that's right, Mrs. Whitwash. You see, I need a good bat. Oh, you need a good bat. I'll be glad to help you out. Can I have the bat right now? Right now. Presents <laughs> 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 lovely Marilyn Maxwell from Metro Golden Mayor, producers of The Sea of Grass. For Camel fans everywhere, in honor of New Orleans Jazz Week. Marilyn sings for the first time on the air the title song of the picture, New Orleans. Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans and miss it each night and day? I know I'm not wrong, but feeling's getting stronger the longer I stay away. The moss-covered vines, the tall sugar pines, where mockingbirds used to sing. And I'd like to see the lazy Mississippi a-hurrying into spring. The bayou, a creole tune that fills the air. I dream about magnolias in June, and soon I'm wishing that I were there. Do you know what it means to miss New Orleans? That's where you left your heart And there's something more I miss the one I care for For 
manager gave me a job as coach for as long as you're on the team. Look, Abbott, if you're the coach, you must know all the players. I certainly do. Well, you know, I mean, I never met the guys, so you'll have to tell me their names, and then I'll know who's playing on the team. Oh, I'll, I'll tell you their names, but you know, strange it may seem, they give these ball players nowadays very peculiar names. You mean funny names? Strange names, pet names, like Dizzy Dean and brother Daffy. Daffy Dean. I'm their French cousin. French? Gouffet. Gouffet Dean. Oh, I see. Well, let's see. We have on the bags, we have who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. That's what I want to find I out. I say, who's on first, what's on second, I don't know who's on third. Are you the manager? Yes. You're going to be the coach, too? Yes. And you know the fellow's name? Oh, I should. Well, then who's on first? Yes. I mean, the fellow's name. Who? The guy on first. Who? The first baseman. Who? The guy playing first. Who is on first? I'm asking you who's on first. That's the man's name. That's whose name? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell That's me. That's it. That's who? Yes. Look, <laughs> well, you got a first baseman? Certainly. Who's playing first? That's right. When you pay off the first baseman every month, who gets the money? Every dollar of it. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is the fellow's name on first base. Who? The guy that gets the That's money. That's it. Who gets the money on he first base? He does, every dollar. Sometimes his wife comes down and collects it. Who's what? Yes. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Look, what I want to know is when you sign up the first baseman, how does he sign his name to the Who? contract? The guy. Who? How does he sign his That's name? That's how he signs it. Who? Yes. <laughs> All I'm trying to find out is what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second base? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. Well, don't change the players. I'm not changing nobody. Take it easy, buddy. I'm only asking you who's the guy on first base. That's right. Okay. All right. I mean, what's the guy's name on first base? No, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on who's second. Who's on first? I don't know. Oh, he's on third. We're not talking about him. No, let's <laughs> How did I get on third base? Why, you mentioned his name. If I mention the third baseman's name, who did I say is playing third? No, who's playing first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. He's on third. There I go, back on third again. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you stay on third base right. and don't go off it? All right, I don't even know. Now, who's playing third base? Why do you insist on putting who on third base? What am I putting on third? Oh, what is on second? You don't want who on second? Who is on first? I don't know. Third, third base! <laughs> Look, you got outfield? Sure. The left fielder's name. Why? I just thought I'd ask. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Then tell me who's playing left field. Who is playing first? I'm not... Stay out of the infield! <laughs> Sure. The pitcher's name. Tamara. You don't want to tell me today? I'm telling you, then man. Go ahead. Tamara. What time? What time what? What time tomorrow are you going to tell me who's pitching? Now, listen. Who is not pitching? I'll who break is... your arm, you say. Who's on first? <laughs> I want to know what's the pitcher's name. What's on second? I don't know. Third base. Got a catcher? Certainly. The catcher's name. Today. Today. Tamar's pitcher. Now you've got it. All we got is a couple of days on the left. <laughs> you know, I'm a catcher, too. No, they don't. I get behind the plate, do some fancy catching. Tamar's pitching on my team, and a heavy hitter gets up. Yes. Now, the heavy hitter punched the ball. When he punched the ball, me being a good catcher, I want to throw the guy out of first base, so I pick up the ball and throw it to who? Now, that's the first thing you've said right. I don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, that's all you have to do. Is to throw the ball at first base. Yes. Now, who's got it? Naturally. <laughs> Somebody's got to get it. Now, who has it? Naturally. Who? Naturally. Naturally? Naturally. 
So I pick up the ball and I throw it to Natural. No, you don't. You throw the ball in a hole. Naturally. That's different. That's what I said. You're not saying that. I throw the ball to Natural. You throw it to who? Naturally. That's it. That's what I said. Listen. You ask me. I throw the ball to who? Naturally. Now you ask me. You throw the ball to who? Naturally. That's it. Same as you. <laughs> don't change your mind. Same as you. Yeah, I throw the ball to who? Whoever it is drops the ball and the guy runs a second. Yes. Who picks up the ball and throws it to what? What throws it to I don't know? I don't know. Throws it back to tomorrow? Triple play. Yes. Another guy gets up and it's a long fly ball to be caused. Why? I don't know. He's on third and I don't give a darn. Well, what? I said I don't give a darn. Oh, that's our shortstop. I'm in it. What is that, Lou? You've got in your hand there. Another telegram? Yeah, but look, I just got a telegram from Joe DiMaggio. Well, go ahead and read it. Okay. Dear Lou, just heard your show. I think you have the makings of the world's greatest natural ball player. You have spiked teeth, a club head, and you've been off your base for years. Good night. <laughs> good night, folks. Good night, everybody. And a special good night to Joe DiMaggio. Get well quick, Joe. Listen to Abbott and Costello again next Thursday night when Costello is going to build himself a new prefabricated house. You can imagine the trouble he'll get after. I don't know whether it'll be a one-story house or a two-story house, but anyway, that's another story. Be sure to tune in next week for another great Abbott and Costello show brought to you by Camel Cigarettes. And remember, experience is the best teacher. Try a Camel. Let your own experience tell you why more people are smoking Camels than ever before. See? A-M-P-L-S. Abbott and Costello's famous baseball routine, Who's on First, is now available at Phonograph Records. This is Michael Roy in Hollywood wishing you all a pleasant good night for Camel. Thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, it's Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall in Bold Venture, followed by Duffy's Tavern. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a great night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.